Today, we're considering a life shaped by the gospel, a life shaped by the gospel. Next week, we'll consider a church shaped by the gospel. Today, it's what I've been assigned, a life shaped by the gospel, united with Christ. Let's read together Romans 1, I'm sorry, Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. I invite you to follow along with me, hopefully in your Bibles. If not, it's on the screens. God's word says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word for us today, church family. If I asked all of us in here today this question, who are you? How would you answer that question? Who are you? I hope you can feel the kind of relevance of a question like that. Our culture is obsessed with that question. Our culture is obsessed with questions about our, our identity. Questions about our identity plague us as human beings. Who, who am I? Who am I? And I hope y'all have noticed that in our secular Western culture, we are regularly over and over again being told in no small voice, that the way that we have to find our identity is to look deep within our hearts and to discover who we most deeply are there 
And then to fight, once we discover who we are there, we then fight against all the external oppressors that seek to tell us who we are, like our parents, like our culture, like God's word, like our bodies even, even biology. These external things, we're told, cannot be trusted, and only you can answer that question for yourself, or so we're told. And I don't have time this morning to talk about all the ways that that kind of thinking doesn't work and all the ways that that kind of thinking is dangerous, but the biggest reason I want us to hear today of why that understanding of identity is dangerous and not helpful is because the Bible rejects it. Because the Bible rejects it. Consider this for a moment. Jeremiah 17, this won't be on the screen, so just listen to this. Jeremiah 17, verses seven through nine. Listen to what this says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and he does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? So do you see the contrast that God's word just held out clearly? Trusting in the Lord on one hand, trusting in our hearts on the other hand. One, trusting in the Lord, will lead us to be strengthened, it says. One will cause us to live with deep peace. One will cause us to flourish. One will cause us to live with stability in our lives. The other, trusting in our heart, God's word tells us, will deceive us and will lead us into all kinds of unhealth. Do we believe that today? So as much as our world is obsessed with identity, it doesn't at all know where to find it. What an opportunity Christians have to speak into that void. My fear though is this isn't just a problem that's out there in the culture, that it's a problem even in here, in the church sometimes. That we can still as Christians struggle with identifying ourselves with things that are not biblical. I mean, if I asked maybe another way, I asked this question a second ago, but if I asked it in a slightly different way, how would you, how would you, how would you answer this? If I asked you, who you are, what would be the first thing that enters your mind? Maybe not the first thing that you say, because sometimes, right, we have something that enters our mind and we're able to fix it on the way out of our mouth, right? But often the thing that comes to our mind first is what is reflective of what's in our hearts. What would you think if you were asked that? What defines who you really are? What would be the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, I fear that sometimes instinctually we think things like this. Well, I'm the son of a lawyer. I'm the daughter of a pastor. I'm a straight A student. I'm an elite athlete. I'm a Republican. I'm an American. Or maybe 
you've identified yourself with a tragedy or particular suffering in your life. I am a man who's lost his wife. I am a woman who's lost her son. I'm broken. I'm addicted. I am a man with cancer, etc., etc., etc. And I want you to not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that any of these are unimportant. Everything I just said is a significant, important aspect of our lives. But are those things, are those things in themselves our deepest, most fundamental identity? I don't think so. I don't think so. Why are we talking about this? Well, because our identity shapes how we live our lives. It's one of the most foundational things that shapes how we live every single day of our lives. And because in this series, we're talking about the gospel-shaped life, one of the reasons that the gospel really is good news is because it tells us who we are. The gospel tells you who you are. It gives us a stable and secure identity. I don't know about you, I have four kids now and I want them to stand on the solid ground that is theirs in Jesus Christ, the stable identity that is not shaking by every new trend in culture, every new temptation, every new peer pressure, they can stand secure and be an image like we just read about in Jeremiah 17 of someone who trusts in the Lord and not in what their culture is telling them. You can have a life like that. We can all have a life like that in Christ. That stable identity, what we're gonna hear today in our passage, leads us to change the way we live and to allow us to live in a totally new way of life, the identity that is ours in Christ. Here's the main idea for us to consider that I'll hang all the points from, okay? So if you're taking notes, here's the main idea that we're gonna consider today from Romans 6. Paul wants us to see in this passage today that understanding our gospel identity leads us to embrace a gospel mentality which compels us to walk in gospel victory. Let's quickly set the context of Romans chapter six, okay? And this whole main idea. There is a kind of question that Paul expects to be raised from what he has just taught in Romans chapter five. A kind of false inference, you could say. Somebody could infer something about his teaching in Romans chapter five that would be false. And he expects that there could be a kind of question raised to what he's just taught about our justification. Remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Justin taught on justification. That idea that we've been declared righteous it's a legal understanding that we've been counted as righteous before the holy king of the universe. That, that's amazing. 
And here's the kind of question that Paul's concerned about that could be raised. It sounds something like this, I'm paraphrasing. If Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against me, that means all my sins, past, present, and future, he's canceled all those. And if his grace abounds to God's glory by forgiving our sin, then why not just continue sinning so that God's grace would abound and God be more glorified? Now, maybe we haven't thought that specific question in our lives, but I think you feel the relevance of that question. In one way or another, I bet we have all thought and pondered that question in in, in one way or another in our Christian life. God is really forgiving. Does it matter how I live my life? Paul wants to show us today, it really matters. It really matters. To to answer that question quickly in verse two, if you're looking in your Bibles, he gives a clear, quick, concise, immediate answer to that question. When he says, by no means, by no means, absolutely not, another way you could translate that, let it never be so. If you've been in church even just a little amount of time, I bet you, you know, well, I think the answer to that question has got to be no, right? But I bet fewer of us could articulate why. Why is Paul's answer such an emphatic, absolutely not? Let it never be so. How could that ever be a thought that crosses your mind? How can his answer be like that? Paul's aim in our passage today is to show us that we who have been justified to Jesus are also called into fruitful and joyful sanctification. He wants to show us what is absolutely foundational for us to understand as we seek to be conformed to the image of the Son. Romans 8, 29 tells us that's our purpose right now, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That is sanctification. We're not only called to this, Paul will tell us, but he is going to give us the gospel grounding or the theological grounding for our success in sanctification. And the reason I know that is if you keep reading in chapter six, he says all of this is leading to sanctification. A few verses later, this leads to sanctification. Paul expects that what he's going to give us today not only will call us to live a sanctified life, it will empower us. It allows us to live a successful life of sanctification. So far from taking advantage of Christ's grace on the cross by living any way we want to, the gospel actually empowers us. It actually empowers us to live in newness of life, like verse 4 says through our union with Jesus. It allows us to live in newness of life through our union with Jesus. So what we wanna do now is unpack the main idea in three aspects, right? I'm sure you saw in that main idea, three main aspects to that. And let's try to unpack that main idea with the rest of our time. In verses two through 10, Paul needs us to know something. He wants us to understand 
our gospel identity. The reason I know he needs us to know something is because he says that three times. In verse three, notice he says, do you not know? In verse six, we know. In other words, and you should, t- you should too. Verse nine, we know. He's calling us, inviting us to understand, to know this, what he's talking about. To, to know this, this is another way to say this is imperative, I'm sorry, in, indicatives. These are the indicatives of the passage. These are truths that he's gonna give us that indicate something that is objectively true about Jesus and about you and me. And he says, we need to understand this. So much of the Christian life, can we agree with this, is a fight for the faith to believe that God's word is true in everything it says. So much of our Christian life is a fight for the faith to trust that what God says is true, not what I feel, not what I can just see with my natural eyes. I'm reading um, a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress with my kids. It's really good. Come, if you have kids and you want a good kids version of this, it's a really good version I just got. It's awesome. They've been glued to it. I love this version because it's really faithful to John Bunyan's original masterpiece. Towards the end of the story, if you're familiar, main character's name's Christian. He's on a journey to the celestial city. Before he gets to the celestial city, all along the story, he's meeting characters by all kinds of names. And all the characters' names signify something. And it's fascinating read. If you've never read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, pick it up, read it. It is a masterpiece. Towards the end of Christian's journey, he meets a character by the name of Ignorance. Ignorance stumbles along the narrow path, climbing in through another way. And as Christian talks with Ignorance, it's quickly discovered that Ignorance isn't following the king's instructions. Ignorance is trusting in his heart to tell him how to get to the celestial city. Ignorance is trusting in his natural eyes to tell him how to get to the celestial city. Christian, on the other hand, is trusting in what the king has told him to do in the book that he's carrying with him. Do you see the picture? Sadly, Ignorance in its most extreme, complete form sends people to hell. It's that serious. But even as Christians, we struggle with all kinds of places in our heart, don't we? That that need to have the truth of God's word move in and renovate, right? It's a fight every day to believe not what my heart tells me about myself, Not what my eyes tell me about the world around me, but what have you said about me? And that's what Paul's doing right here. You need to know this. You need to know this, Christian, what's what's going to be said about us. The first thing he says in verse 2b, listen to what he says in 2b, right after he says, by no means. He says, how can you who have died to sin still live in it? And it's almost as though he expects our eyebrows to raise at that question. What do you mean by that? How can you who have died to sin still live in it? 
Just let that question land on you. How can we who've died to sin still live in it? He goes on to explain what he means. Here's what Paul tells us about our present identity in verses two through 10. Here's what Paul's gonna say. When we came to believe in Jesus and belong to Jesus, we were united to Jesus. We were united to Jesus. And he's gonna say in verse three, our water baptism depicts something that has truly happened to us spiritually at conversion. His, his image of baptism there, right? In verses two through, two through four. He's saying that our water baptism depicts what has truly happened to us spiritually in our conversion. We were baptized, he says, into Christ Jesus. Into Christ Jesus. Baptized into Christ. And this is Paul's way of talking about our union with Christ. We were baptized into Christ Jesus. We don't have time to talk about all the, all the ways that our union with Christ, all the, the things that that means, but Paul's gonna give us two main things that he wants us to consider about our union with Christ in this passage. And you're taking notes, you can write them down. The, all these aren't gonna be on the screen, but the biggest reason that I want you to have is when we were converted, we were united with Christ. And in two ways, he's gonna tell us, we've been united with Christ in his death and we've been united with Christ in his resurrection. And we could say that those are realities that are inseparable, they are, but Paul comments on both of them individually in our passage. So first, let's look at what Paul expects us to know about our union with Christ in his death. This is true about everyone in here who's a believer in Jesus. He says, because, in verse six, let's go to verse six, because we've been united in his death, verse six says that our old self or our old man, that old man language is going back to what he's talked about of, with Adam and Christ in the section before in chapter five. He says our old self that was united with the first Adam died with Christ. Our old self has died with Christ, he says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, he says. Now just think about that for a second. If you are here and you are in Christ, that reality, Paul is telling us, has already happened. In order, Jesus did that, and we've been united with it, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That is incredible. This is what God did when he united us with his son. Then in verse six, he says that because our old self has died with Christ, he says, so that, do you see that in the middle of verse six? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's one of Paul's ways of saying, become who you are. Become who you are. So that Jesus did that, and we've been united with him in that. Our body of sin has been brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Oh my goodness. I mean, just think about what this means for a second. He's saying that the powerful sway that sin had on us when we were united with Adam, that powerful sway towards sin has been broken when we were united with Jesus Christ. United to Christ, Paul is saying, we have been set free from the power of sin. The power of sin that once was held on us is gone. It's been severed, he's saying, with our, the, 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 the union we had with Adam has been severed and we have now been united with Jesus Christ. That the enslaving power that sin once held on us is no more. It is amazing to think about. We love thinking about justification as Christians, that Jesus cancels our penalty of sin. Praise God, he cancels our penalty of sin, but that is not, church family, all that the gospel offers to us. It's not all that the gospel says to us. In Jesus's death and in our union with him, in his death and resurrection, we're being told that not only the penalty of our sin has been dealt with, the power that sin held on us when we were united with Adam has been severed. The power of sin over our lives has been broken through our union with Christ. That's really good news. This gospel is comprehensive. Not just the penalty of sin, the power of sin can be overcome. It's broken because we've been united with Jesus. Not only have we been united with him in his death, he goes on to say we've been united with him in his resurrection in verse eight. Corey told us last week that Jesus' death means absolutely nothing unless he rises again. And that's right. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, all that we heard last week. And this is what Paul understands too. So we don't only view our union with Christ in his death, he also rose again. And we've been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And he says, because we've been united in his resurrection, verses eight through nine, tell us that we will never die again. Did you see that? I mean, just look at how Paul's talking. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died to sin, he died once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And I was just thinking about that point this week. I was remembering what Jesus said to Mary and Martha in John 11, after he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you remember what he says to them after that? He says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he looks at them and he says, do you believe this? And I look at us this morning and I say, do we believe this? Do we believe this? That we've been so united with Jesus. Our, our resurrection is so certain. As certain as Jesus rose from the dead, our resurrection is that certain. We've been united with him in his death and his resurrection. That's incredible. The next thing he tells us in verses nine through 10 is that we now have a life that's been freed from death and Adam, like we said, and we can, he's gonna say, we can live in a new way of life. Verse four, back to what he says in verse four, a new way of life that is pleasing to God, that is facing the Lord. It's living for him, to him. 
It occurred to me this week, um, often we can fretfully be concerned about the end of our lives. The death that Corey said last week in the, in the Bible is called for believers falling asleep. We can be so fretfully concerned about that. And we can have all kinds of arguments about in the future resurrection, what our lives will be like. Those are important things to think about. But what I wondered is how much our lives would be different if we thought more about this death and this resurrection that we've been united to Christ in right now. How different would our lives be if we thought about this reality that Paul is saying, this is true about you right now. I don't know what you feel, Paul is saying, but do you not know this? This is what's true. But he doesn't just tell us things that we need to know. Paul goes on to give our first imperative our first command. He's telling us all these things we need to know about our gospel identity, but then he says we're called to embrace a gospel mentality. So he moves out of indicatives, telling us what is true about us, and now he says with an imperative force, this is a command in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. How, how are we supposed to do that? He's not done with talking about our union with Christ. How can we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive? In Christ Jesus. That's how we can do that. Because we've been united with Jesus. That's how we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. The phrase in my ESV, many of you all have ESV, says consider yourselves. Another way to, to translate that is to count yourself. The old English, reckon yourself. Count yourself this way. Reckon yourself this way. Consider yourself this way. This is a command. It's not just something that we know Intellectually, it's something that we put on. It's something that we embrace. There's a, there's a huge difference here. And this is why Paul in Colossians and other places uses the analogy of putting on clothes. Putting on clothes. We cannot simply know about our identity. We have to live in it. We actually have to experience our identity psychologically. This is what I've been praying. I've been praying this specifically. We prayed, I asked John to pray for this specifically. In a room like this, many of us have been churched a lot of our lives. We've heard truths probably like this a lot. Far fewer of us know how to actually put it on. It's almost as like we have a, we've been given an identity like an a glorious, beautiful outfit. It's been given to us. And we are content to hang it in our closet and stare at it, discuss it in our Sunday school classes. Wow, what a beautiful concept. What an amazing idea. Wow. And we're called to put it on, put it on. Make it our mentality. And this does not happen automatically. That's why he's giving an imperative. This will happen with intentionality. This will happen with discipline. 
this is another way in verse 11, he's telling us we must become who we are. We must become, we must be who we are. How many of us have just been staring? This has been true of me as I was meditating on my own heart. Where am I on this? Just been staring at an intellectual doctrinal concept and I'm not putting it on. I'm not actively putting it on. We actually can put it on and live in a newness of life because it's ours. God doesn't keep it from us. He's given it to us freely and it's true. It really is true. And like I said, this is going to take deliberate intentionality. Here's some suggestions when you're thinking about what do you mean? How can we put this on, Kurt, practically? Well, I think this means we have to pray regularly, consistently for this to become our mentality not just a doctrinal checkbox that we know, that we pray very specifically for this to become our mentality. We have to memorize passages like this and like Galatians 2 or Colossians 3, these places where Paul's talking about this. We have to maybe memorize some passages. We have to meditate deeply and regularly and continue back to prayer to ask for the faith to believe what God says about us is true. Even if our hearts don't feel like it's true, put it on, put it on in faith. And then Paul gives us how we can respond today. He tells us how we can respond. Obviously what I just said is part of our response. But in verses 12 through 14, he tells us how he expects us to respond. Not every week we have something so clearly given to us in a passage about this is what we're called to do. He tells us we must walk in gospel victory. We are called to now, verses 12 through 14, walk in this, walk in gospel victory. First, he says, do not let sin reign in your life and report to it like it is your master. Why? Because it's not your master. That's what he's just argued. It's not your master. Even if you're here today and you feel like, man, it feels like it's my master, it's not your master. If you're you're here and you're in Jesus Christ, sin doesn't reign over you. Do not let sin reign, therefore. Because of everything I've just said that is true, do not let sin reign in your life and report to it like it's your master. That's where he's gonna go if we read further in chapter six. This understanding of master-slave kind of idea. We now belong, he has said, to a new order of life. In verse four, that newness of life language there can also be, it's more literally a new sphere of life, a new realm of life, a new order of life that we, because of our union with Christ, we are been united to. So become who you are, become who you are. Do not let sin reign in your life and report to it like it's your master. It's not your master. It's not your master. We've been united with Christ in his death. And if you're here and you're going, but Kurt, I still find myself falling into sin over and over. I've had you in my mind this week. 
First thing I want you to hear me say is struggling with sin and being enslaved to sin are very different things. Struggling with sin and being enslaved to sin are very different things. Struggling with sin means that confession and repentance are coming after it. Ask people in your discipleship group about your struggles with sin and say, do you see confession and repentance? Do you see a godly sorrow that's leading me to repentance over this sin rather than a worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrow would just be considered being enslaved to sin. Struggling with sin has confession and repentance going after it. Often people in your discipleship group that you've invited into your life can tell you that this is a struggle and not something that's just completely enslaved you. So those are different things. And to the person here who's particularly feels stuck in sin, I would just wanna say two things to you quickly. First, if you're here and you feel like you're just stuck in sin, first, it may still be that you don't see the real dangers and fruitlessness of your sin. It may still be that you really don't see the dangers and fruitlessness of your sin. I mean, a person who's taking God and his grace for granted and is looking for ways to sin regularly, that's a person who doesn't understand how unsatisfying sin is and how much better Jesus is. That's a person who doesn't understand the infinitely greater joys that are available to him or her in Jesus Christ. And I would say, pray, if that's you, pray for a higher and a greater and a more satisfying affection for Christ because he really is more satisfying. Like how much more? Like no comparison, no comparison satisfying. And you keep running back to your sin because you still haven't come to grips with the fact it will leave you with a mouthful of sand every time. It will leave you empty every time and you need to pray for a better, greater affection in your life that just shoves out that lesser affection. The second thing I would say to the one who feels stuck, I would say, how much have you really meditated on your union with Jesus? How much have you really meditated on your union with Jesus and all of the implications? I mean, think about this for a second. Jesus Christ is nearer to you today than when he was walking next to his disciples. That is an incredible thought. This is not a throwaway argument. Paul goes here first in almost all of his letters. When someone is struggling with sin, he first, out of the gate, he says, you don't understand who you are. You don't understand your identity. How many of you have really meditated, spent concentrated time praying for, memorizing, meditating on, getting accountability? I'm gonna put it on. Are you just here again looking at this, this identity in your closet? Go, what a neat idea. What a neat concept. Wow, what a cool, that's deep. Wow, that's cool. And then going away and not putting it on. It's yours to put on what blessings we have in Jesus Christ because 
Sin no longer has dominion over us, he's gonna say. And the second response, second response for everyone here today, what Paul gives us in these last verses is we're told to present ourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Often we try and beat ourselves down with the law to try to overcome sin. He's saying that won't work. That was a part of the old order. Not saying that won't, it won't take intentionality and discipline, but if you try to go back to the law to overcome your sin, it won't work. You need a new amazement with the grace that Jesus has offered you. The amazement of the grace of the cross and what your union with Christ, that you are nearer. Jesus is nearer to us today than when he was walking next to us, walking next to the disciples. It's no wonder he said, it's better that I go away. I'm sending you a helper through him, I will be in you. That is amazing to think about. Sin will have no victory, no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. Presenting ourselves to God who have been brought from death to life. Here's what I think that looks like practically on an everyday. If you want me to give you this prayer, I'll, sit, I'll screenshot it to you and send it to you later. You can easily come up with a prayer like this. Here's one way that this can look every single day when you wake up in the morning. You pray a prayer that is something like this. Before you go to him in his word, you pray something like this. Maybe you can do this on your way to work. Maybe you can do this right before your quiet time in the morning. Say, Lord, thank you for uniting me with your son. Help me by faith put on this mentality that I am his and he is mine, that I've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Help me today taste the joys and the fruit of the new life that you've given to me in him. Use me today for your purposes. I think it can look something like that every single day. It can look other ways too. Present yourselves to God as those who've been brought out of death and into life. If you're here today and you have no idea what I'm talking about, <laughs> You have no idea what we're talking about. I just wanna to say to you today, the Jesus that we're talking about here, he not only can cancel all of your sin today, like to where it, he doesn't count it against you ever, he can cancel your sin today. He not only can do that, he can give you a stable and secure identity. He can tell you who you were made to be. First Corinthians six, Paul says, do you not know your life was made for the Lord. If you're here today and you don't know what I'm talking about, hear that, your life is made for the Lord. And if you would just put your faith in Jesus, turning, trusting in him, all of that, that identity that we're talking about today is yours. Come find me during the last song. I'll be standing over here. Come and talk with me. I'd love to pray with you about that and talk with you more. I'm inviting you down. We're gonna sing a song, Life Defined right now. Life Defined, we've sung it many times before, but I pray that we would sing this in greater faith today. 
now knowing more what the Bible means when it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and he gave himself for us and he's loved us. So let me pray for us as the musicians come. Lord, give us faith. Give us faith to see what it is that you have done for us in Jesus. Give us faith to understand that our lives have been united with you, with you, Jesus. Lord, help us to sing in greater faith. Stabilize us, strengthen us, Lord, as we respond in song now. And I ask these things in the name of you, Jesus. Amen.